there are only two conditions required to change anything, right? There are only two. That is a bona fide desire to change. And that, that desire must be burning inside the person. You really got to want it. And the second thing is you got to be willing to give it what it takes. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm Dominic Monkhouse and today we are learning from Gina Malconi. Gina is a best-selling author and an agent of change. She's written Think or Sink and The Secret of Successful Failing. She's based in Whistler in British Columbia in Canada. And I only met her as a serendipitous impact of COVID. 13th of March 2020, her business went to zero. Until then, what she would do is at any one time, she'd be working with three private clients. Maybe she's doing 12 to 15 private clients a year and she's helping them get what they want. Now, in Gina's words, anything is possible. And there are two things that need to be true for that to happen. One is a passionate, a burning desire, not just a I would like, but a desire to see the change and then a willingness to do whatever is needed, not to do just enough or a bit, but to do enough to see the change through, to do the work. And all of her revenue was linked to discretionary air travel, either for her or for her clients. And so her business goes to zero and there's no way she can now earn any money. She quickly pivots and the business now, Greatness You, trains coaches like me to be better coaches. So that's how I met Gina last year. And I wanted to get her on the show to talk about change and talk about her model for change and to talk about some of the things that people might need to do. So we talk a bit about how to build rapport, some of the secrets of building rapport, either in person or face-to-face. We talk about her model for change. And we also talk about one of the things that she did at the beginning when, I guess, when she was a parent, she was struggling with having been good at some things. And now all of a sudden she's not good at being a parent. And what could she do to break out of that box? And for her, it was running a marathon. So we talk about her story there as well absolutely fantastic. I never spend time with Gina and find myself not learning new things. So I hope you find our conversation as interesting as I did. Hi there, I'm Gina Malacone-Long. I live in Whistler, Canada. I am the founder of Greatness You. The reason why I get out of bed every morning is to reveal the greatness that is always there. And it's just a matter of tapping into what's present. I've written a couple of best-selling books. The first was called The Secret of Successful Failing, obviously not a book about failure. And the second book was called Think or Sink. 
And uh, both of those books are basically about people tapping into the resources that they have to get what they want faster and with less effort. And that second book, because we're going to reference a diagram in it, if people want to, if they're not driving their car and they want to go and get it so they can see the diagram, where do they need to go? They can go, um, we've been giving it away for about a year now on Greatness U, that's the letter U, greatness, the letter U.com slash virtual. There's probably two dozen resources on there. And right near the top is a full copy of Thinkorsync, the electronic version. And on page 165 of that book, we're going to probably talk a lot about the process of change because that's my favorite thing to talk about. And I know you love talking <laughs> about it too. So why do you, why change? Like how do you end up being the change person? You know, I, I realized that you're either standing still or you're changing. Like there is no, you're, it's one or the other. The only people who don't hit any obstacles are people standing still. And so I realized early on that the only thing in life that never changes is the actual process of change itself. Now I have a process control background. I was a, an engineer uh, in my undergraduate. And so process control was my my thesis. And so I dealt a lot with changing systems. And then one day I just realized human beings our systems and the process that they go through when they change anything is exactly the same every time. And so if you can become the master of the process, then you don't need to worry about what's changing so much, right? Like it's not, people get wrapped up in the content of change and they get flabbergasted if the content isn't something they've seen before, but the process never changes. And so that's the beauty of it. Okay. So you can help people change Anything? Anything. Faster and with less effort. In fact, I make a bold claim that there are only two conditions required, and, and you've heard me say this, there are only two conditions required to change anything, right? There are only two. That is a bona fide desire to change, and that desire must be burning inside the person. You really got to want it. And the second thing is you got to be willing to give it what it takes, whatever that means, and so people often erroneously hear me say, you got to give it all you got. That's not what I said. Because they'll say, I gave it all I got and I didn't get it. Yes, that was all you thought you had, but that wasn't what it takes. In order to change, you have to give it what it takes. And if you knew how to do it, just as a side note, you'd already have it. So there's an element of mystery there. And so that's the whole idea is you got to give it what it takes. But the first bit, I think that when you talk about desire, yes. that's not a, oh, I fancy it would be nice if I wish I was fitter. Right. I think next week I'll start a thing. I want to. Want. Oh, I didn't get fitter. I want. I want. I think I stole it from you. Is it I want means I can't or I won't? Well, I can't. That's it. That's when it. When someone says I can't, what they're saying is I won't. And that's okay. So I want to be crystal clear. I'm not the change police. Right. And I don't believe I don't sit you when you ask me why I do what I do. It's not because I think the world needs to change. I really don't. I, I am perfectly content with the way things are. But when somebody raises their hand and says, I'd like to have something I don't have, then why I get out of bed in the morning is I help them get in touch with the resources they already have. They're just not conscious right now. So when I say you have to have desire for change and willingness to give it what it takes, the desire is really important because a lot of people confuse true desire with wanting to want to change. Like I want to want to be fitter and I want 
to want to make more money, but they don't actually really want it because when a human being really wants it, right? So you've probably in some of the, the trainings that I've taught, you've seen a quote that I get quoted a lot. And the quote goes like this, if someone doesn't want to change, there's literally nothing you can do to change them, nothing. However, if someone wants to change, there's nothing you can do to stop them. And so that's this idea of desire. If you have a burning desire, you must, it, it, it's the first condition. Without it, you, you don't even launch into the actual process of change. You just go through some ridiculous bastardized notion of your comfort zone. This applies to people. Does it apply to organizations? Oh, for sure. Because organizations are collections of people and they're unified by whatever holds the organization together. So while it's not identical because there are more moving parts in the mechanism of the organization than there would be in the individual, it's, it's still going through as an entity, if you will, the process of change. I was just thinking as an individual, I could see that I might have a burning desire to do something, but to create a burning desire in an organization or in a separate group of people, you know, your quote was, if you don't want to do it, it won't happen. And so, and so when, you know, I come along and say, Hey, we should change. And everyone goes, yeah, no, if we just sort of play along a bit, he'll get bored and go away. That is the issue in an organization. That is an issue for a leader because, and this is the biggest mistake leaders make. Okay. So just think about if you're listening to this right now, have you ever tried to change someone else that didn't want to be changed? And how'd that go? It's a disaster. And so you would think in an organization... Anybody who's been married right? must have either... Tried. Their other half has tried to do it to them or they've tried to do something in their spouse and... Recipe for disaster. Now, if... And this is the, this is the game of leadership. So if you're the leader and you're listening to this, you have one job and one job only. Flexibility of behavior. You must be the most adaptable being person in the organization because that is the most important quality for a leader to have. All the other ones fall under flexibility of behavior. So you have to be able to adapt your communication. You have to be able to adapt your style. You have to be able to adapt your processes. You have to be able to adapt everything, your you know, air quote language sometimes, because it's your job to lead. Now, how do you lead people? If you want to change, people try to change people, but if you if you pump up their desire then it'll be a smooth ride. So how does a leader pump up desire? Well, there's really only two ways, carrot or stick, right? Like you either offer some incentive to want to change, like money, vacation, pizza party, whatever, or you offer a penalty for not changing that creates a desire, right? And in that are all the tactics that leaders use or have used. So, you could alter the compensation plan. You could give extra vacation. Like there's a million tactics you could use, but the number one mistake people make is that they think their employees are going to share in their desire because of the vision. And it, that may be true. And sure, that's a charismatic leader who's leading in, in a utopian way. But the majority of leaders have people working for them who are just going to work. They literally don't share the same passion and vision for whatever it is that you're doing, that, that doesn't mean they're not committed, but they're not wired the same way. And so you have to adapt to what you have. And that's tricky 
for leaders because they try to force the tactics and they use themselves as the base point, which is a total disaster. What do you mean by that? Well, if your employees, like, you know, I often hear CEOs say, oh, I would just wish my employees were more like I was. I wish they were more like me. I feel like I have to do everything, right? But the thing is, you don't actually wish for that because if they were more like you, they wouldn't work for you. <laughs> I wouldn't work for me, right? You'd be working for yourself. They, they'd be competitors. They'd be out coming up with their own ideas. So there's an element of you're the leader, they're the follower. That, that's just the default. Like it's the, it's the way it's set up. And so what the leader I believe is trying to communicate is, I wish they were easier to, you know, change, to, to manage. That's what they're saying. Well, if that's the case, and I believe that is what they're saying, then they have to learn how to pump up the desire. And that could be through strong vision, clear values, you know, that kind of stuff, a good compensation, like the right kind of compensation, the right kind of structures. And then the other thing they have to do is they have to hold tight the framework within which you manage or coach people. And that's where most people fail. They don't hold it tight enough. It's not clear enough. So when they're trying to enable their people to give it what it takes, the boundaries of how that happens have to be quite strong. So that, you know, do this, don't do that. And then as long as the employee does the process, whatever it is, they'll get the outcome. But we give too much leeway, right? We don't, like, you, you, you know, when I teach coaches, right? When I'm just teaching coaches about how to be more effective coaches, the most important thing is to keep the client accountable. Well, first of all, how many organizations in general keep their employees accountable, like truly accountable and not like whipping them when they don't, when they don't do it, but accountable, like empowered so that they are accountable for whatever it is they're responsible for. So they either do it or they don't do it but they're accountable for either the result or the not result. And if they don't get the result that they want, they have a next step. Like they know what they're doing. They're going to take the feedback. Okay, boss, you know, I was supposed to deliver this by Friday. It didn't happen. It doesn't even matter why, right? Doesn't, doesn't matter, but I've got the feedback and here's what I'm going to do next week. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do this and it's going to be done by Wednesday, but I got the feedback and I'm moving forward versus most organizations spend so much time making the excuse valid. Oh, that was a good reason, (laughs) right? Like, you know, there are no good reasons. You either got it or you didn't. And I'm sorry if that rubs people the wrong way, right? You either get results or you get reasons. There's no in-between. And nobody wants a pile of reasons at the end of their career. And and eventually there are consequences because if there aren't, what we're saying is that it's okay to just do nothing. To just not get the result. Like not getting a result is a result. It doesn't mean you're bad. You know, the secret of successful failing, I alluded to it when I said who I was. It's not a book about how to fail. It's a book about recognizing that every time you try to adapt a new behavior, create a new behavior, get a new result, do whatever, you're going to fall down. And it's about as significant as a baby who's learning to walk is going to fall down right? So babies who are learning to walk fall down all the time, but they don't sit there and wallow in the fall. They just get up and they try again. (laughs) Somewhere along the line, right? Adults become so terrified of falling down in an attempt to run faster, jump higher or whatever, that they don't even move. 
they've wrapped this stigma around failure. Failure is very unemotional. Failure means you didn't get what you wanted your way. That's it. It doesn't mean you're a loser. It doesn't mean you're never going to get it. It doesn't mean you don't deserve it. It doesn't mean any of that. It just means that the sequence you tried to put together bombed. And so you got to try a different sequence. That's it, literally. And the sooner you take the feedback from the failed attempt, right? Because the attempt will have in it a lesson. The sooner you incorporate that feedback into the system, the faster you can adjust. So this comes from my engineering background. That's how you manage systems in giant factories. You don't wait three hours to measure the temperature and then beat the shit out of the machine because the temperature is five degrees lower than it should be. And then have a staff meeting, you know, what are we going to do about this low temperature? You measure the temperature as quickly as you can. You adjust the machinery as quickly as it can. And you bring the temperature back up to its set point, however, as quickly as it can. That's it. And the faster you can do that in a factory means the less it will break down. Right? So it's the same in the human system. The faster you can get the feedback from the system, you feed it back into the system, you adjust the system. Somebody wrote a book once called like Fail Faster or something like that. Brilliant. Yeah. Like just just get to the performance point as quickly as you can, measure it, yes, no, take the feedback and do it again. And by the time you've done a thousand trials, somebody else will still be grappling with resisting the fact that it's not going to work the first time. And that's flexibility of behavior. And so that flexibility of behavior is required by the leader and required by the whole organization. Well, honestly, and I know people layer their organizations differently, and and I totally appreciate that. And and a lot of people promote people based on how long they've been with the company. And while that's a thing that people do, I don't think it's a very smart thing because you should be moving people through the organization based on the level of complexity of thinking that they can manage. The more flexible they are, the more adaptable they are, the more valuable they are because life is not a straight line. So the leader needs to be the most flexible. And I'll use a totally off context analogy. Let's say you were the leader of a multinational organization and that had, you know, 17 languages spoken around the world. In order to be the best possible leader, you should probably know how to converse in 17 languages. Otherwise, you lose touch with your employees and they become more flexible than you do. Now, I'm not saying people should go out and learn 17 languages, but the point is humans are that different. And the only way to be the best leader possible is to appear like a chameleon almost to all of them so that they think you are like them no matter what. When we're talking about the mechanistic model called neuro-linguistic programming would be the process of rapport. People think that rapport is like a God-given gift, but it's not. It's a skill. It's taught. You can learn it and you can become good at it. And the whole point of it is so that each person you interact with believes you are exactly like them. Because when that happens, then you get more done faster with less effort because you're not struggling against the differences. Yes. Well, because people say... I hear them say, people buy from people they like. And I say, no, 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 no. People buy from people that they think are like them. Precisely. Right? Because people like themselves and uh, win friends and influence people. Nobody gives a shit about you. They only care about themselves. I am paraphrasing that book slightly. Totally. So drop your ego, become like them. Because you originally asked me, like, should everybody be flexible? Sure, in an ideal world, wouldn't that be great? But the truth is they're not going to be. Sorry. The, the, the reason why you are the leader is because you are the most functional in the organization. You should be. But 
to expect your employees to be able to do that without any other reason except that you hope that they will is kind of naive because they are haven't developed in the same way that you have. Some some will be, and they're worth their weight in gold. How do you hire for that flexibility? What are you looking for? Because I'm often looking for curiosity, and is that the same thing? So curiosity would be a precursor to desire, right? So in curiosity would be a great quality to look for because the person is literally looking around going, what's next? What, what else? What is that all about? What's the, you know, I say these two conditions, desire and willingness, right? One of the indicators of desire is this innate questioning. Like you're, you're questioning what you know you don't know, right? So you, you, you realize, oh my God, there's this whole wide world and there's all these things I don't know how to do, but I want to do them. And how do I get started? What's the next step? When you ask questions, it's indicative that desire is present. It's, it's sort of in that analogy of a baby learning to walk. When you start to see your baby pulling itself up on the furniture, that's an, a precursor to walking. It, it means they want to start moving around on two legs, but they can't yet, right? So if they let go of the couch, they're going to fall right back on their bum. What you don't see is a one-day-old baby pulling themselves up on the furniture. You don't see a newborn baby trying to pull themselves up on the furniture because they're not ready to change. They're not neurologically prepared yet. And until they're ready, there's no desire, okay? So when the baby starts pulling itself up on the furniture, that means they're ready. Their, their legs are strong enough. You know, they can support their weight. Their head isn't going to fall off their body anymore, things like that. And so it means they're ready. But what you notice is just because it means they're ready doesn't mean they can walk. So in an organization, what you want are people who want something more. They really do. They want more money. They want a promotion. They're ambitious. They're curious. They want to innovate. They want to make a difference. Whatever the values are, the organization they want, they want, they want, but they might not know how yet. And so the job of each layer of management is to provide the structure. Oh, you want to make an advertisement for our product. You want to make a great one. You want to win a soapy award, whatever, you know, an award. Okay, great. Okay, here's how we make good advertisements in our company. This is the process. These are, you know, step one, step two, step three, step four. Then the employee's got to be willing to follow the steps. And as long as they're willing to do what it takes, they're going to be able to produce it. They're going to get their result. But the higher up you go in an organization, the more your job is to make sure that, People want whatever it is you're doing. So clear vision, clear values, you know, all of that work at the highest chunk levels. That's got to be clear and it's got to be congruent. So you got to walk the talk. And then each layer, and this is, you know, a lot of the work of the, of the types of coaching that you do is those processes have to be there and they have to be easy to, to follow, right? They have to be linear and take out all the floof as long as people do the work right you sort of marry each side of the brain they got the heart they got the brain they do the work they'll get the result and if they don't get the result then they'll have a clear measurement right some sort of dashboard or something will tell them where they fell down and then they'll have the feedback they'll incorporate that back into the next iteration and then they'll have the result it's simple, but it's not easy because it requires this sort of iterative constantly and you have to adapt, right? So, you know, the last year has been, the theme of the last year has been like, how quickly can you adapt? In a face-to-face non-COVID world, how do you teach people to develop rapport 
And then when there's no face-to-face and it's just on Zoom, how is that different? Right. So it's slightly different, but it's not totally different. So rapport is a process of matching and mirroring, right? So that's fancy talk for copying, right? Mimicking. So rapport is a connection. So when I'm in rapport with you, I'm connected, right? If I'm not in rapport with you, there's this invisible barrier between us. Get it? So the job of the leader, the leader of whatever it is you're doing, is to remove the barrier. How do you remove the barrier? You need to create this likeness. You have to create this similarity. Well, how do you do that? Well, you need to, you know, air quote, walk a mile in their shoes. You need to become like they are. Not make them like you or agree with you or adopt your model of reality or see things your way, but the actual opposite. You have to drop who you are, your preferences, your ego, if you will, and become like them. Now that sounds daunting. Well, it's actually a process, right? And we borrow from the work that was done out of UCLA in communication science that says a communication packet is made up of words, vocal quality, and body language, right? And they said 7% of the communication is words, 38% is the vocal quality, 55% is the body language. So 7, 38, 55 You've probably heard that in some capacity in business over the years. 738-55 rule. People make a mistake. They think, oh, that means words don't matter. That's not actually what it means. It just means that the words are not as important as people thought they were. It's the nonverbal communication that really trumps the connectedness. Okay. So if your words don't match your vocal quality or your body language, right out of the gate, there's a barrier. People immediately put up a barrier. Like, this is why we don't like politicians because they say all these beautifully crafted spun words, but the rest of them is like totally, you know, incongruent. It's like, I'm so excited to be here. It's like, I can't wait. You know, and you're just like, what the hell? So that has to be congruent. So then we've just taken that and said, if you match and mirror those things in the other person, then you'll create rapport because you'll show up like they do. So body language, you know, in a face-to-face world, I can easily see that you're, you know, your right shoulders back. I can, I can turn my body so it's at the same angle of yours, or I can cross my legs or whatever. If your legs are crossed, I can cross my legs. If, if your arms are crossed, I can cross my arms or I can cross my legs. Like I can just cross a part of my body. Like I can match your body language. No problem. It's not complicated. I'm doing it right now. In a COVID world, I can do that on video. I can still see your body language. So I can still achieve on a video call, I would say almost all rapport on a video call that I could in person, for real. Now, as soon as you take away the video, now I've lost the ability to see the body language. So now I only have seven and 38, right? I have 45% now. I have the words you're saying and I um, I have the vocal quality. So I can match your vocal quality, things like tone, tempo, volume, right? I can match all that. So if you're a loud talker, I need to be a loud talker. You know, if you're more of a soft talker, then I need to turn my volume down. And that's not, as you know, that's not my natural state, (laughs) right? But I can do it. I can uh, change my tone. Now I'm not going to copycat. You're, you know, you're, you're a man. I judge your vocal tone to be right in the middle. You don't sound like Darth Vader. You don't sound like, you know, Mickey Mouse. So it's right in the middle. So I just keep my tone in the middle of my own range. And that's how I match it. I don't, ca- I don't mimic it. I match it. 
So, but if I was talking to Darth Vader, right, I, I would lower my own register to the lower part of my register. But if I was talking to Mickey Mouse, I would, I would raise my own tone, right? And I can change the tempo of my talk. I can, I can speak slower for people in slower geographies. Say you've got a team of people. As I speak to them, I change the tonal quality and mirror their body language as I'm talking to them. Well, in a group, it's a little trickier because you have more than one person and you've got to try to show up to each person. So what I say to leaders is learn how to do this one-on-one. Learn how to do it one-on-one. But the most important thing then comes back to make sure your words are congruent. Now, the words, as you know, become very important. And it's not the words like Mary went down to the store. It's not the actual words. It's that this idea that people tend to use words habitually, right? So they tend to use types of words habitually based on how they process the world. And the biggest, the biggest way we chop up, you know, how people process the world differently is through something called representational systems. So, you know, nobody has trouble understanding visual auditory, kinesthetic, and more of a robotic digital type approach. There are four main ways to approach the world. And and I think everybody can understand, you know, some people are more visual, some people are more, you know, auditory, some people are more kinesthetic, and some people are just a little bit more robotic or a little bit more process oriented, right? Nobody really has trouble recognizing those buckets. They've heard of them before, but what you don't realize is that people have a preference and they tend to stick to their preference. So if somebody really is a more of a visual person, they prefer to over, you know, represent the world visually. They just, there's more visual processing. They're more, um, they're more interested in visual sensory information. Then they're going to constantly be caring about how things look, how they look, how the office looks. They're going to use visual words. They're going to say, hey, come and look at my work. Do you see what I'm saying? Like they're going to use words like that because they, they process more visually. Whereas an auditory person would communicate the exact same thing, but they would say, can you hear my meaning? How does this sound to you? So they're saying, they're communicating the same essence, but they're using auditory words. They have fancy headphones. You know, they, they care about loud environments. Maybe get, they get distracted by them. So if the office has no walls, they might have trouble with that. And then there's the kinesthetic person who tends to move a little slower. They care about comfort and feelings a lot. You know, they, they want a comfortable office chair. Can you feel, you know, how did you have a gut feeling about this idea? right? They, that's how they speak. And then, then there's the sort of digital person, which is kind of like Sheldon Cooper, you know, from the Big Bang Theory, where everything is like, I understand, I sense, I, you know, I'm kind of dissociated. I, you know, I, I don't really care. Like, you know, Raymond Holt from Brooklyn Nine-Nine, right? Like, just give me a flavorless cube and I'll ingest that and enjoy it. Like, it's, it's very robotic. You know, army generals tend to be very digital. And those are the four types of people, And everybody in your office has probably got one preference or another, and the leader has a preference. And this is the important part. So let's say the leader of the organization is visual. The mistake most leaders make is they assume that because they're visual, that's the right way. 
But what they don't realize is they've got a whole office full of auditories, kinesthetics, digitals, and they can't lead them with visual predicates, with visual vocabulary, because it won't, it'll just bounce off them. So this is where you do have to alter. And one-on-one, you would alter it specifically to whoever's sitting in front of you. And one-to-many, you would have to hit all of those in your speech, right? So that everybody would feel included. Do those preferences all show show up as a way in which information is consumed? So if I'm auditory, are my podcasts and audiobooks? If I'm kinesthetic, am I real books? So yeah, so if it, it can. I won't say it will, because people are adaptable. But but in ice, you know, if you were to take hardcore isolation, right? Then the auditory person's gonna be there, they're like, I haven't picked up a book in a decade, but I listen to podcasts and audiobooks all the time in my car, whatever, you know, in their car where the speakers in their car are nicer than their car because auditory people are really sound sensitive. But a visual person might say, no, no, I read on the screen or I read summaries or whatever. They read them with their eyeballs. Kinesthetic person wants to pick up the book, you know, turn the pages, right? Where a visual person might be fine with a, with an electronic reader, a kinesthetic person will have a house full of books, right? And then a digital person uh, will just want the facts in whatever is the most appropriate way. Yeah. Just, just give me the blinkest 10 to <laughs> the cliff notes. Totally. And you know, if you're listening to this and you're a leader, you might be like, oh, I do all, all of them. Yes. That would be my expectation because remember the leader should be the most flexible. So the leader should be able to jump between visual, auditory, kinesthetic, digital, no matter what, they should be able to be comfortable in all of those And it should be the circumstances that dictate which one they're doing. And the circumstances are the people in front of them. Yeah. You know, if Maggie Sue comes in and she's kinesthetic, then the, then the leader's got to drop into the kinesthetic mode and, and slow down and, you know, make sure she's comfortable and then use words of kinesthetic nature, like feel and touch and, you know, that kind of thing. And then if Paul comes in, you know, 10 minutes later for his meeting and Paul's an auditory, you got to switch, you know, close the door so it's quiet, vary your vocal, uh, your vocal qualities to match his, use auditory preferences, like predicates, like, does this sound like something you can, you know, work on or blah, blah, blah. And they need to be able to translate. And then, you know, Violet comes in the door and she's super high visual, right? And so, you know, you want to, for, for when Violet comes in, you got to make sure something as simple as your desk's not a disaster because that's going to distract a visual person, right? And so you got to be able to adapt and, and be like whoever walks through the room. And then what happens is these three employees go down to the water cooler and they're just chit-chatting and while they're getting their water for the day and they go, man, I love our boss. He or she just, she exactly, I feel like she knows me. She, she's exactly like I am. And the other person goes, I know you mean. And meanwhile, what they don't realize is they're three totally different people. But, but the boss shows up, you know, in this connected way. And this is just one, we've just spent, however long we've spent talking about one aspect of one component of communication, right? Vis-a-vis flexibility of behavior, Right. So when I say flexibility behavior, I don't be able to, you need to be able to touch your toes. I mean, the, the leader needs to be able to read the environment and adapt. And what we just talked about was specifically reading people 
to be able to lead them more effectively or to sell to them if you're in if you're in sales because that's because that's the same thing it's the exact same thing and just so we're clear every time you open your mouth and communicate with another human you're selling whether you're selling a widget or you're selling an idea you're selling and either they buy what you said or you buy why they didn't and as a leader you you would be wise to remember this like even this podcast that we're doing right now right you and i are having this conversation and people are listening and they're either learning which is means they're buying it right air quote or th- there's confusion and so they're, they'll, they'll, they'll say to us, I didn't get it, which, which means we either need to address that objection, air quote, or we have to accept that they didn't get it. And I don't, I don't like that. That's not how I roll, right? So when people want to learn something, I want to make sure that everything's out of the way so that my teaching gets to them. So for those of you that are still confused, and, and we put this online for your, uh, when we had to adapt that first training you ever took with me, we put the rep systems test online and it's still there at greatnessu.com slash quiz. So anybody can take it, right? And we even made it a little more complex so that they'd get a better answer. And it, it auto fires them reports and tells them, you know, it's kind of like getting, not your horoscope, but it's kind of like getting, you know, your, your disc or your Myers-Briggs. Ooh, ooh, I'm an auditory. I'm a visual. There's not a lot of use in knowing your own, but it's interesting to be aware. But then, There's no cost for that quiz. So give it to everybody on your team. It'll fire you the reports and all of a sudden you'll go, ooh, I see Maggie Sue. She's a bit more kinesthetic. I'm going to adapt. And you will instantly become a more effective leader because you know more about her. So you can adapt to meet her where she's at. And that's selling as well. So, So take all that's management of people. That's teaching people, but now let's take it into selling. And you and I know this. Most people suck at selling because they try to sell from their own viewpoint, for their own perspective, from their own model of reality, and they try to shove it on the other person. The best salespeople on the planet elicit the model of reality of the person sitting in front of them, ask questions, determine a need, and then they link the need to their product in their in the other person's language air quotes, right? And then the sale is a done deal. Telling people never works, but asking them, questioning them into buying is much better than trying to bludgeon them. Well, aren't you the one with the famous, uh, the famous four, four outcomes of yeah, each sales totally. interaction? Totally. It's freaking genius. I stole that from you. <laughs> Just so people know what that is, it's, uh, if, I'm, if I go and see a client, I'll say, look, there are only four possible outcomes. I, I think I can help you and I, or I can't. You think I can help you or you don't. And let's just agree at the beginning to be grown up and tell each other what the outcome is. It's great. By the way, it is in terms of desire and coachability. So, you know, how I said any change because selling is a change. Okay. So remember my whole jam is change. Like everything I do is about change no matter what. So when you sell somebody something, you've effectively created a change because they didn't have the thing and now they have the thing. So what you do up front when you do those four conditions is you establish the willingness, the coachability part of this air quote client or prospect. So let's just assume they have the desire for whatever you're selling. Otherwise they wouldn't be sitting in front of you. 
right? So then the only other thing is, are they willing to give it what it takes? And you establish upfront what it's going to take. And it's going to take me think I can help you and you think I can help you. There's only one of four outcomes that work. Yep. Right? And as long as that happens at the end, it's a done deal. So it's not selling, it's sorting. And you hold that container tight. Well, it's qualifying, right? Are you in or are you out? Well, and the other thing is then people often say to me, can you send me a proposal? No. <laughs> in which case, that's you don't think I can help you. Yes. Otherwise, you'd have just said, yes, send me an order form. So we've got to go, we've got to go back and go through this again or, or just agree to not work together. Right. What they're indicating to you is one of two things. One, I don't want this. Great. Done. Move on. Or two, I don't get it. And that you do, you have to go back and figure out what is it that you aren't communicating in their language. Mm -hmm. So what do you not get? And you have to ask more questions until you find the actual need. Because humans are super simple. If you give them what they need, they will buy it. Period. If they need it, they, they won't hesitate. And, and so there, or they don't need it. So they, if they don't need it, you want to get there as fast as you can. No, I don't need that. Yep. Okay, great. We're done. A no's as good as a yes. Right. Let's spend our time talking to people who are going to say yes. Let's not spend our time talking to people who are going to say no. Because you can't change, you can't change their mind. Because it's change. See, Dom, it goes back to change. If someone doesn't want to change, there's nothing you can do to change them. But if someone wants to change, there's nothing you can do to, to stop them. So... If someone doesn't need what you sell, there's nothing you're going to, you are going to do to make them change. But if they want what you sell, there's, you're not going to be able to stop them. Right. And so your job, if you think you have what they need and they aren't seeing it, then the problem is they don't see it the way you see it. They don't hear it the way you hear it. They don't feel it the way you feel it because you're not communicating in their air quote language. Now, if it was their legit language, like if we were trying to sell something to someone in France and they only spoke French, we'd have to learn French or we'd be making hand gestures, <laughs> right? It's ridiculous. Or we'd have to hire somebody who knew to speak the language. So again, when I say the leader with the most flexibility of behavior, because they have the most options, they go, oh, this one didn't work. Let me try this tool. And so then when life shows up the way it does, and just so we're clear, yes, I know we're in the middle of a pandemic and it's very tumultuous, okay? And somebody said something to me today. I just can't wait to go back to normal, to the way it was. I said, first of all, it's never going to go back to the way it was. Thank God. And secondly, this is a cycle. You know, the wheel of fortune, it's just going to turn. We're going to go through a decent period of recovery and then something else is going to come along. I don't know what it's going to be, right? But we're going to need to, so instead of, you know, requiring the circumstances to be this smooth, frictionless environment. When it started, just as just as the pandemic had, you know, it was obvious the world was turning on its head. Sure. I, I had Jack Stack, who wrote Great Game of Business on the podcast. Oh, cool. And, and he said, Dom, this is my seventh Black Swan event. I love it. Right. He said, we've got $500 million in the bank. And every time we have a black swan event, because we save money when right. the times are good, right. we're prepared for it. And every single time it's happened to us, we've doubled the company in the next five years. Bring it on. It's like save for a rainy day. Not because you, you are some sort of Eeyore pessimist, <laughs> but because it's going to rain. <laughs> like it's guaranteed it's going to rain. And 
you know, an umbrella is more effective than a newspaper in terms of key, like, it's just, it's going to rain when whatever it is happens, right? Like, do you really think like, I just, I want to make a joke here because it's hilarious. So let's go back to like January of 2020 before anything, you know, right now you're at a cocktail party and you meet somebody and you're like, Hey, what's your business? And they're like, Oh, you know, like it's, we just got this small little plexiglass company, you know, we don't, there's not a lot of big market for plexiglass and you're like, Oh yeah. You know, niche market, like, right. That guy's now a billionaire. Yeah. But no one could have predicted that. Like no one, no one wakes up in grade three and goes, I'm going to open a plexiglass company or, or a round circle sticker company, you know, like think of all the things or a sanitizer company, right? Like think of all the things. Or make millions of pounds importing masks from China. Right. Or make masks. Period. Yeah. So for those people, you know, people would say to them, oh, you were just lucky. No, they were not. They were prepared. They were, they had a product and then there was a need and they responded. I think there are in any town, anywhere in the world, there's three restaurants next door to each other. You know, one of them's already out of business or two of them are out of business. And the other one is actually doing as well as they've ever done, if not better. Yeah. And it's that flexibility that ability to change. Jim Collins calls it return on luck. It's exactly. When this is all said and done and we do the numbers, your country, my country, we lost a ton of entrepreneurs in this pandemic. You know, we're doing a lot more over internet and I've had things cut out completely, right? And so the first time it happened, it's it's a calamity, but then now I've changed my systems. So when I'm running something online, I have backup systems now. And that's an adaptability thing. Some people just go, oh, I, I can't do it because my internet's not reliable. And then that's the end of them. Translate that into leadership. So they say, I can lead if the conditions are like this, but as soon as the conditions change, I can no longer lead. Well, now you're screwed as a leader, right? That's why, that's why I say flexibility of behavior because the adaptability is what's going to keep the company moving forward. Maybe new products, maybe not. Maybe save the old products. I don't know. But it's the flexibility of behavior. It translates in the operations of the company, but also in the management of the people, in the leadership of the leader, right? That that adaptability has to be there every single time. And otherwise, they're not effective. And you were talking earlier when, we were, when you were using the example of a baby learning to walk. It's also that rapid cadence and feedback system. Well, think of, but think of a baby learning to walk. There's really not a lot of you know, pride invested in the failure. And, and this is the other mistake leaders make. So, so even if you give up this stigma around failure, so you fall down, you get up, you run. Okay. So when you take your first steps, when the baby takes its first steps, most leaders think they're done. Like they're like, yeah, we did it. So I want you to take this analogy now. So baby takes its first three steps. So you're going to pick it up and take it down to the corner of, you know, main and, you know, first, whatever is the most busy corner in your town and send them on their way. You would never do that. So leaders think that just because they or their organization achieved the change once, they've got it. Now, you and I know it needs to be turned into mastery. It needs to be turned into the process so that you can't not do it that way. And that's what makes a company scalable because the processes are failure proof. Yeah. Get it? So the vision's clear. The values are clear. All of that is 
is buttoned down, the desire is there, and then the willingness is managed through the processes. The processes are created because you figure out how to do it successfully, and then you figure out how to replicate that or scale that so that every time you go through it, it produces the same outcome. That's mastery. Well, it's interesting because that reminds me of a video of yours that I watched, which was you talking about running the marathon and why you wanted to run the marathon because it then gave you, because you'd overcome something, it then gave you the confidence to overcome anything. Right. So, so that's called like a, an inductive change, right? If I do one thing, then I can do anything. And so in the category that I was trying to break free from was that I was having, I was struggling as a new mom. It was impossible. And, you know, I mean, I, you know, overachievers, and, and I'm sure that if you've got parents listening who, who are leaders who are parents, their business is easy compared to parenting, <laughs> right? And so there I was used to being good at things, used to getting what I wanted, used to, you know, things coming easy to me. And then there are, you know, these two babies and I'm like, ah, oh, I can't do this. And so I got trapped in this thinking that it was impossible to be good at. And so I thought I got to break this thinking. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to do something else in this bag, right? I had this grab bag of things that are impossible. And I just, I just looked at it and I thought of all the things that are in this bag, which one is like the least, which one is the least solid, Yeah, you know, the least impossible. And I picked running a marathon, which was pretty impossible for me, but of all the things in there, like walking on water and things like that, running a marathon was the least impossible. So I thought if I can do that, then I blow the boundaries right, right then and there, and I can drag everything across or drag many things across. And so, you know, I embarked on this, this quest to run a marathon. Now I know lots of people listening to this run marathons and that's good for you. For me, it was really impossible. Right. And yet when I did it, when I pushed through, and this is where I came up with being willing to give it what it takes. So in the marathon, I hit the wall around 20, no, 19 miles. Cause there were seven miles left in the marathon. When I hit the wall, seven miles is a lot. Like that's a, that's a, I couldn't go do seven miles right now. So that's a run in and of itself. And when I hit the wall, I thought, oh, this is it. I'm done. Like I've hit my limit. This is it. This is what, you know, I gave it everything I had. I'm seven miles short and I'm totally shut down. And I mean like the wall wall, like muscles in spasm, like done. And then this kind of, you know, serendipitous thing happened and my husband happened to be there and he just happened to ask a couple of the right questions, you know, coincidentally. And they were just benign. Like, you know, why is so-and-so's name on your shirt? Cause I was raising money for a cause greater than myself, you know? <laughs> and he started just bringing that into consciousness. Just, I think because he was uncomfortable cause I was, you know, falling apart. And so he was just kind of like, just kind of commentating. And then it dawned on me that all these people gave me all this money for this charity thinking I could do this. The only one who didn't think I could do it was me. And that was a limiting belief. And so why would I, why would I keep that? And so I just, it just, it was just very like organic. It was like, well, that's stupid. And I just let it go. And in the moment that I just decided that I was going to keep going, my body turned back on. Truly. I, I, I'm going to hesitate to use the word miraculous because it was mechanistic. But so then I was on a quest. How do I, how can I reproduce that? What was that? And what I realized was when you give it everything you got and you fail, it's actually not everything you've got. 
It's everything you thought you got based on the past of your life. So it was a limit for sure, but there was something beneath it. There was a deeper level that you could only reach if you actually got there and broke through it. And that's the willingness. So when I say to change anything, you have to have desire. It's got to be burning. And then you have to be willing. And you have to be willing to poke through that hard part. You know, I I often quote Churchill because Churchill said, if you're going through hell, keep going. And that's like my favorite quote. And yeah, because that was in hell. And you know what? At the beginning, we said there's a there's a diagram we're going to talk about, which I think until now we haven't talked about at all. What page is it on? One sixty five. <laughs> it's that. And what I just talked about was between point B and point C, which is basically the trial and error part of trying to change anything. As long as you have desire and a willingness to give it what it takes, and this is not a motivational speaker thing. As long as you have desire and a willingness to give it what it takes, there is literally nothing you can't achieve because. Desire means you're ready. You have all the neurological components, like you're ready. The baby's ready to walk. And as long as you keep getting up every time you fall down, what's that Chinese proverb? Fall down seven, get up eight or something like that. Japanese proverb, right? As long as you get up every time you fall, eventually you'll find the sequence. Then you now have the behavior. And then you just have to repeat that sequence, wax on, wax off until you master it into a habit. Once it's a habit, you can't not do it that way. That's it. It's so simple, but but you've got to go through the stages, right? And then I altered the diagram just a tiny bit from, from when I wrote the book a million years ago. The new level, instead of calling it A prime, I'm now calling it Acme, like, uh-huh. like Roadrunner, like Acme, because Acme is the Greek word for highest point. And so that's the highest point you can operate at. That's the peak, the peak performance, the Acme of your performance. And then I I cleverly organized all of the work we were doing with all these mechanistic models and viewpoints of how to help humans get what they want faster and with less effort. And I used the acronym ACME, right? So everything we do is accelerated change mechanisms of excellence. That's it. Everything. And all it is, is it's teaching people the processes that enable them to get what they want faster and with less effort, whatever it is, right? And it doesn't matter in an organization, like you said at the beginning of this call, it could be one person trying to achieve one thing or an organization trying to achieve a group goal. It, the whole game is how to do that faster and with less effort. And that is actually mechanistic. It's not um, mystical. It's not luck. It's step by step. And sometimes you're going to do a step and you're going to fall down. And that's okay. You get up and you redo the step using the feedback. That's the, you know, that's the simplicity. Fab. Gina, what is it that you now know that you wish you'd known earlier? This, that, that you can achieve anything. I kind of always suspected it, but you know, back then people used to call me like positive and motivational, but I'm not right. I, I wish I had known how simple it was that if you just want it, you have a burning desire for it and you stick with it. You just, you know, Churchill also said, never, ever quit. Like, just stick with it. I mean, the guy got the British army off the shores of France when all hope was lost. That guy did not quit. I mean, he had every reason to. And so there's a wisdom there. And it's not this like, oh, golly gee, you know, you can do anything. No, you really can. And if someone's ever done it before, just copy them. Like, I mean, that's the whole idea of scalability. But if no one's ever done it before, then you're going to have to invent it. That's going to take a little bit more effort. But really, truly, anything is possible with desire and willingness. And I wish, I wish, you know, if I could tell my younger self 
things. There were some things I quit, quit on when I was younger that I wish, you know, I'm curious what would have happened if I would have just kept going with it. Okay. And what, what books have you been inspired by or read or think other people should read? I, I literally read three to five books a week, but I think if I had to pick a few, <laughs> honest to God. And are you audio, audio or physical? Oh, I read real books. I, I, I read real books. I will listen to them on airplanes. I'm flexible enough. I'll listen to them in my car and I will read an electronic reader because if I, you know, when I come over the pond to see you, I don't bring 11 books with me. So I'll, I can adapt. I'm flexible. Right. And sometimes I will read the synopsis, but I will tell you books that I read and reread over and over and over again. And I'm big into philosophy, but uh, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl has got to be one of the greatest books uh, ever written because this is a guy that could reframe a concentration camp. Right. And then the other book would be, well, I really like Power Versus Force. And uh, that's a bit obscure, but it's the, it's the subtle difference between power Think about it. Both push rocks uphill, power versus force, but you know one has far less effort than the other, right? So it's much more effective as a leader to be powerful than it is to be forceful. Uh-huh. So that's a really, really good book too. What's the one you're reading? What you're reading at the minute that you really like? Uh, right now, I'm reading William James, uh, who is a philosopher, and I and I'm also reading a book by Dean Radin called "The Power of." It's it's like a scientific book. He's a scientist but he's explaining what we would have called magic. And I literally just read yesterday or two days ago, I read Joe Dispenza's book called Supernatural, which has got some fantastic stuff in it on activating the pineal gland um, with respect to meditation. Oh my God, some stuff in it that is fantastic. Really good. Gina, thanks very much for joining me today on the show. Thanks for having me. And you know, if you, if you need anything, just just find me everywhere. <laughs> we'll put a link to Greatness You in the show notes and the book. Lots of free stuff. Fab. Gina, that's magic. Thanks, man. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.